One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down. It was in the midst of stuff just like this, in the midst of real life, in the midst of the ups and downs of life, he began to teach them God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice or righteousness, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. That's what we're talking about today. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in this way. This is what Jesus is saying. In the midst of these crowds of people that are coming to him for healing and restoration, for freedom from demonic oppression, he's saying, congratulations. You who are broken and mourning and overwhelmed and hurting and grieving, congratulations, the kingdom of God is here, it's present, it's available. The kingdom life of God is available for you right now. God's rule from the heavens is here and it's now, it's not sometime later. That's what Jesus is declaring, and I believe that's what, it's exactly what he is saying over this situation with Connor and Sarah and, and Georgia. Congratulations, you're mourning, you're suffering, you're desperate for me to work in your life and to move in your life. Congratulations, the kingdom of God is available to you. The reign and the rule of God is present here and now, not some time in the future. Yes, one day the, the full reality of God's rule and reign on the earth with us will be realized. But he's saying, congratulations. I'm bringing it now. And he calls us to recognize that the culture of heaven is different. This is what Dallas Willard says. Since great teachers and leaders always have a coherent message that they develop in an orderly way, we should assume that his teaching in the Beatitudes is a clarification or development of his primary theme in his talk and in his life, the availability of the kingdom of the heavens. How then do they develop this theme? In chapter four of Matthew, we see Jesus proclaiming his basic message, repent from your sins and turn to God and demonstrating it by acting with God's rule from the heavens, meeting the desperate needs of the people around him. As a result, sick folk were soon coming to be healed from far away as Syria, and whatever their illness or pain, or if they were possessed by demons or insane or paralyzed, he healed them all. What then does Jesus say to us with his beatitudes? How are we to live in response to them, Willard asks. They serve to clarify Jesus' fundamental message. 
Here's the fundamental message of Jesus, the free availability of God's rule and righteousness to all humanity through reliance upon Jesus himself, the person now loose in the world among us is here. Those who are regarded as most hopeless, most beyond all possibility of God's blessing or even interest are within the reach of the kingdom of God. So today's text, God blesses those whose hearts are pure. You can just put your finger in Matthew 5 if you haven't already. We're going to just break down this uh, and these words in this text. That word in the Greek that Jesus uses for pure describes something genuine or clean. It's a moral purity or innocence. But it also means to be free from guilt, clear of debt, or unmixed. And that unmixed is actually like uh, speaking of alloys, of metals that are mixed together. Jesus is talking about uh, uh, an honesty and integrity. Like there's no mixture between what's going on in one part of our life and what's happening in another part. Religious and moral cleanness in the sense that uh, we're free from the stains of shame and guilt. We're free from adulteration. It's interesting that in our culture today, our culture believes that purity or the, the desire for purity is actually a form of oppression, that it's actually a form of bondage and slavery to suggest that, that there is a, a kind of life that Jesus is calling us up into, a kind of life that surrenders its own desire and seeks the desire of God that's actually seen as oppression, that's actually seen as, as uh, you know, a, a, a domineering, authoritarian, harmful idea. And what Jesus is describing here in terms of the kingdom of God is uh, a desire for purity in the heart that is, that is unadulterated, it's not mixed, it's got integrity between what's happening inside and what's happening outside. But I love, I love that part of this meaning is actually freedom from shame. I love that. See, our culture says, you know, uh, if, if you go down this road, it's going to lead you into bondage. It's going to be restrictive. Your, your life is going to be miserable. The, the pursuit of purity in your life, whether it's sexual purity or purity in your business or purity in your thought life or purity in your finances or purity in your relationships and your marriage, if you go down that road, it's going to lead you to miserable bondage. And Jesus is saying, no, it's actually quite the opposite. That purity of heart brings a freedom from shame in your life that you cannot find any, anywhere else. And in a culture and in a world, in a Christian culture that's, that's doubled over with shame and guilt and regret, Jesus is calling us to purity, not so that our lives become these miserable, moralistic kind of examples of virtue, but he's calling us to purity for freedom's sake. And one of the great lies of the enemy of God 
is that purity in heart toward God leads to bondage. And Jesus is saying, no, it actually leads to greater freedom, greater joy, greater life. Jesus here is offering a countercultural reality. Again, the Beatitudes are simply a description of the culture of heaven. And he's offering this as a countercultural reality that when we set our, our heart and our mind, when we set our life on a trajectory where, tra- trajectory where we're desiring freedom and purity in our heart, it actually liberates us instead of leading us to bondage. And what he's confronting is the, the idea that's permeated through society for millennia because of the twisted, distorted lies of the enemy. He's, he's, he's confronting this cultural idea that my freedom is of utmost importance to God. That my freedom, my liberty, my right to do whatever I want is the most important thing about me. And that's what will truly bring you joy and happiness and freedom. And Jesus is saying it won't. That's a red herring. Purity of heart actually toward God brings you the greatest amount of freedom. It's interesting in the Old Testament the purification rituals that they used in the tabernacle and in in the tent of meeting were rituals that they used to give them access to the presence of God. So these rituals for purity that were, were lived out in the Old Testament were used to open up access to the very throne room and presence of God. And Jesus is saying in Scripture, purity gives us access to God. And God is looking to access your whole life through your heart. Purity gives access to the presence and kingdom of God. I want you to remember that the word for heart in scripture is not the literal heart in our body. Jesus is not talking about that. Jesus isn't even talking about what our culture now sociologically would describe the heart as a primarily just a feeling uh, organ. In Jewish culture, the heart was the center of their entire life and personality. In Jewish culture, the culture Jesus grew up in, the heart was a reference to the inner areas of life, including your will, your mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your choices, your action. The heart was literally the command center of life. It's where you determined how you were gonna live from. It's where your thoughts and your words come from. It's it's where your ideas about God and the world around you come from. It's what drives your desires and your preoccupations and your obsessions and, and, and all of that stuff. The heart is all of these things. It's the will and volition of man come from the heart in Jewish context and literature. That's why D.A. Carson says the heart in Scripture is the center of the entire personality of a person. What Scripture teaches us is that, that humanity lives from the heart. 
contrary to what uh, popular philosophers from the Enlightenment on have taught us, that, that we are just rational, intellectual beings. The scripture says otherwise. And actually, human nature says otherwise. We are actually driven by our heart, not our mind. That's why when you're, you know, when you're in love with someone in the beginning, especially, or infatuated with someone, you'll do things that defy logic and reason. The best logic and reason, the best principles for how you should act or behave go out the window when you're in love with someone. You make horrible choices out of love. You're not thinking, you're not thinking with your mind. We're not primarily rational beings. We actually live from the heart. We live driven by the desires of our heart. This is what scripture says. Galatians 5:17. The sinful nature of which the heart would be uh, the controlling part of that. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your good intentions. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, look, this, this model, this rubric that we have for Christian life, where um, if I just know what's right and I make better choices, I'm going to grow spiritually. That's, a, that's bogus. Paul is actually saying the opposite. Uh, and he says it in Romans 7. I know what I should be doing, but somehow I end up doing what I shouldn't be doing because I'm not living by just my intellect and reason. I'm driven by this desire in my heart, this thing that's fueling the direction of my life. And this thing that's fueling the direction of my life always wants to go off the road in my own direction, not toward God, not toward purity. St. Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce it, he uh, is attributed um, largely as providing Western civilization with, with its greatest notions of the reality of the heart in the role of humanity. And he said that the problem of the human condition isn't that we don't love it's that we love either the wrong things or the right things in the wrong order. See, then Freud comes along, and Freud says the greatest thing that you should live for is satisfying every desire of your life. Specifically with Freud, a lot of it was around sexual desire. But for Freud, when he came along, he said, look, no, no, no. Uh, it's, it's actually oppression and bondage to, to restrain and redirect these primal animal desires of your life. So, so what you want to do, you must do. And that is the definition of freedom. That's the definition of life fulfillment. And virtually every psychologist these days would, would recognize that Freud has, has had a huge impact on modern psychology, but most of his theories were just garbage. That's what they would recognize, that it's not actually true what he was saying, but that is permeated into our culture so that we have slogans in our pop culture, like the heart wants what it wants. I can't do anything about it. Follow your heart. You do you. My favorite from growing up, just do it. Right? Go ahead. What about this? Speak your truth. 
Or what about this today? Just be true to yourself. Be your real authentic self. Honor that. Honor that, and you'll honor yourself. Did you know where that phrase, be true to yourself, comes from? I have to look this up. It actually comes from Hamlet. Do you know who says that phrase in that play, Hamlet? It's actually Polonius, the fool. In that story, it's the fool who says, be true to your heart. It's the fool who says in that context, be true to yourself. That your greatest need is to be true to your inner desires, to be true to what you want. In his book, Divine Sex, Jonathan Grant, which is a good book, by the way, says this, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being they must resonate with who we really feel we are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside, by society, our parents, the church, or whatever else. It's deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. Today, self is the new God and spiritual authority of our culture. And we see this in sexuality. We see this in our pursuit for power and pleasure, the desire to have what we want. We see this even in the political sphere. Self is the new spiritual authority. My rights, my independence, my freedom. Socially, politically, sociologically, self has become the new God. And this phrase that the fool Polonius spoke in this play Hamlet is now tantamount to gospel truth that cannot be uh, spoken against. How dare you challenge my belief that authenticity to my true self is my greatest need and calling. But scripture teaches that our heart is not an adequate director of human life. Our heart should not actually drive our life and our thinking unrestrained. This is what scripture says, Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? You don't even know how bad it is. You know, even in the Christian world, we, we, we kind of, we use these kind of pithy biblical quotes like I'm a new creation or, or the old is gone, the new is come and all of this stuff. Like, what do you mean? I, I know what I've been redeemed from. I know the state of my heart. You don't know how deeply dysfunctional your heart is in its depth. And I don't either. Matthew 5, 19, 15, 19, sorry. From the heart, this is Jesus, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. We don't even know what's fully in our heart. And it would be arrogant and presumptuous for us to believe that we do. Presumptuous to believe that you know every vice or every area of vulnerability, every dysfunctional 
thought or emotion or motive, you and I don't. So if that's the reality of the human heart that scripture paints, then how do we cultivate purity in it the way that Jesus is talking about? I wanna leave you with a couple things really quickly. Proverbs 4.23, many of you know this, guards your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. So the first thing we do in cultivating purity of heart is we guard it. But here's the thing, guarding is not covering or hiding. Guarding is directing through movement. So guarding is not just like that we hide it, we cover it, we kind of shove it in a safe place or, or, or bury it. Guiding is actually directing through movement. The same way, you know, uh, traffic officers guide traffic through an accident or, or on the scene of, of something going on. We guide it through movement. And this is what the Apostle Paul said about how to guard your heart by guiding it through movement. 2 Timothy 2.22, run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, fairness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. 1 Corinthians 6, run from sexual sin. So Paul's directive in guarding our heart is to run from those environments and situations that bring us into greater vulnerability to the temptation of our heart. It's not to just bury it. It's not to cover it and kind of sit on it like, you know, a bird does an egg. In Scripture, guarding your heart is running from the things in your life that are undermining your ability to live for God. And Paul, one of the greatest apologists, theologians, thinkers, spiritual leaders in history, is saying, here's how you guard it, you get the heck out of there. Stop thinking that you are stronger than you are, that you can handle more temptation than you can. We guard our heart by running from the situations in our life that put us in danger and in jeopardy. He says it like this in 1 Timothy. Timothy's getting a lot of this from Paul. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation. This is not just a sexual thing. They're trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. These things lead to different consequences and actions. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all of these things. Don't sit there in religious moral piety and go, well, I I can handle this. I can handle this temptation. You know, I've learned, I'm mature enough. Paul is saying, look, you're not, so run. That's number one, how we guard our heart is running from those things in our life that challenge God's call over us, that challenge purity in our heart. Purity in our heart doesn't come from repressing the desires in our heart. It comes from renovating them. So purity doesn't come from just by sheer force of your will, shoving them down as deep as you can into the bowels of your life 
and pretending like they have no influence or power or aren't there. It actually comes from renovating that desire, renovating your heart to to actually redirect that desire into something that is God-liberating freedom in your life. So when we run, we are admitting that the desires in our heart are actually there. So running is not a form of just like, close my eyes, I'm going to pretend it's not here. Running is actually acknowledging this thing right now is actually powerful and can master me if I sit in this spot. So I'm going to call it out right now. Guys and girls who are dating, when you, when you start to get close to that line, running is not just like pretending like nothing's happening. Running is going, here's where it is. We're vulnerable right now, so we're headed out. We're like, we're going to mom's room or whatever it is. We're getting out of the basement and we're going into a public space or whatever it is. It's running from that very thing that will Uh, be most dangerous to us. It's not ignoring it or repressing it. Running is actually acknowledging it and going in a different direction. That's actually what scripture calls repentance. So it acknowledges it so that God can redirect it and bring renovation to it. Solomon, he doesn't instruct us to repress our heart. He calls us to bring God into the center of those desires. Here's what he says, Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not depend on your own own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. So Solomon's not saying repress your desires, push them down. They're, They're gross and evil and God is disgusted by them and he's disgusted by you with these desires. How, you know, how could you think these things and feel these things? That's not what Solomon is saying. He's, he's saying actually acknowledge, begin by acknowledging it, running from that space of vulnerability to temptation. But as you're running, recognize God, you need to do something in this desire to redirect it. You need to do something to renovate my heart and my life with this desire, not just repress it. Often we get this picture that what's necessary here is to take all of our desires in our heart, line them up, then put Jesus on top like a giant heavy book weight and just have Jesus bear down on all of our desires. And I think actually what Solomon is saying is not that. What he's saying is, that you need to actually invite Jesus into the center of that desire. Don't repress it. Run first from that moment of vulnerability to temptation, but then actually bring that desire into the light and say, Jesus, what would it look like with you directing this desire instead of me just shoving it down? What would this desire look like with you directing it in my life? How could you reform it and renew it and renovate it? So that's number one. We guard our hearts and we guard by running and redirecting. Number two, we expose our heart. So number one, we guard and remember that's not covering. That's running actually into the light. Number two, we we can create a culture of purity in our heart by Number one, guarding it. Number two, exposing it. And we expose our heart to the light of God by bringing it to God in confession, but also confession with each other. 
So here's a key thing that we often miss, and especially in our Western uh, Christian cultures, that we've made everything so individualistic, like I'll just deal with that with God. Me and God, it's private matter. No, it's not. And that's not scriptural confession. Listen to this. Proverbs 28, 13, people who conceal their sin will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. All right, fine. I can do that between God and I. Great. Go for it. That's where we need to begin in exposing our heart to the presence of God, being honest with God about what is actually taking place in there. But James builds on that and he says, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you might be healed. Biblical confession is never an isolated, solitary practice of privacy between you and God. Biblical confession involves trusted, let me underline that, circle it, bold it, emphasize it, trusted people in your life. Bringing to light what is in your heart, bringing out of the darkness the reality of your heart. So number one, to a pure heart is guarding it. Number two is exposing it. I want to challenge you teenagers. There's a lot you can do and get away with in privacy these days. Just hide up in your room and most of you have devices or phones or You know, you live these solitary lives a lot of times, but teenagers, you need solid people in your life that you can be brutally honest about your life with. People that you know will love you regardless of what it is you're walking through and going through. Married couples, often as married couples, we live in secrecy. We actually need to practice confession in our marriages and in our families and relationships. John's message in the Gospel of John was repent and confess. And confession was always actually not just between us and God, but us and other people. This is where we actually begin to see the power of God at work. Jesus bringing forgiveness and restoration from that that's broken in our heart, the dysfunction but the spiritual power and authority needed to overcome the enemy's influence actually comes from confession to someone else. It comes from bringing it into the light, humbling ourselves before each other and saying, look, man, this is raging in my life and, and I've, been, I've been on this hamster wheel for a long time and I can't get off. I need you to stand with me in this. I need to bring this into the light. One of the most terrifying but liberating things I've ever done is enter into like a full life confessional with a couple of people that I deeply trust and am walking through life with. Like literally, like like everything, everything, everything out on the table. And it 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 is the epitome of freedom. The epitome of freedom, not bondage, It's the epitome of freedom to walk, to stand in front of you right now, knowing that there's no skeletons in my closet. There's nothing that that is going to just come out that I've been trying to like redirect or hide. 
being able to live in integrity with my wife and know that there's nothing going on in my life that she doesn't know about, that I'm, that I'm keeping from her, that I'm, I'm shielding her from. Whether I have this dysfunctional belief that it's for her protection or whatever it is, there's nothing more freeing than being totally transparent with God and others. This is the integrity of the heart that Jesus is talking about. Daryl Johnson says this, the pure in heart are not perfect. It's just they know they cannot hide anything from God. So living in sync with the really real, they bring their thoughts, their emotions, their fears and dreams into the light of God's truth and grace. Purity of heart, if we want to cultivate it, number one, we've got to guard our hearts. Number two, we have to expose our heart to God and to other people. You can look at Psalm 139 for that. And this isn't even just about the sin category things in our life. These are just about even good things that we're pursuing that are out of alignment with God's heart for us. Being willing to humble ourselves with trusted friends or people in our life and to say, look, like, God is convicting me about this thing, and it's not even a bad thing, but, uh, but I feel like I, I'm actually walking outside of alignment with him, and I want to I bring you into this and confess this to you. I want to bring this into the light. As a church, I believe God is calling us to cultivate a community of holiness in a culture of hedonism, in a culture that's obsessed with desire and fulfilling our wants and needs. God is calling us to create a counterculture of purity and holiness in the midst of that. What does it look like for us to stand out from the crowd because we are set apart for his purposes? What does it look like for us to run from temptation, not sit in it thinking that we're stronger than we really are? The third thing we need to do with our heart to seek purity is we need to humble it. Humility is the gateway to God's presence and the birthplace of renewal and renovation in our heart. Psalm 51, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Isaiah 57, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. James 4, 7, 8, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Humbling our heart is actually the act of seeking God and his presence in our life. In Deuteronomy this is what God says to them. God is prophetically speaking to Moses and saying, look, like, even once you get the promised land, you're going to fall into temptation of idolatry and you're going to walk away from me and you're going to be exiled and you're going to be broken and you're going to be displaced and you're going to be suffering and all of this. But from there, you will search again for the Lord your God. And if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him in that place of deep brokenness, in the place maybe today you're sitting in of, of habitual crippling sin, 
attitudes, thoughts, sexual sin, temptation with money, greed, power, abuse, whatever it is, in the place of your brokenness, in the place of your greatest need. What God is saying is if you seek me with all of your heart, if you humble yourself and seek me, you'll find me. David said in Psalm 119, my heart is set on, de- on keeping your decrees to the very end. So we cultivate purity in our heart by guarding it, by exposing it, and by humbling it. And then what is the result? We'll just end with this. Jesus says they will see God. There's several meanings to this. There's an eschatological meaning, like at the end of the age, we will actually be with God, reigning and ruling on the earth with him. But seeing in Scripture is often related to knowing and understanding. Cultivating purity in your heart actually cultivates and creates a greater understanding of the nature and presence of God in your life, a greater awareness of God. This week, I want to leave you with this. Ben, you could come up for a moment. I want to leave you with this. And this wasn't while I was prepping for preaching. It was actually while I was washing dishes this week. I just felt like the Spirit speak to me, and he said, Andrew, notice how Jesus doesn't say, God blesses the pure in heart, for God will see them. And as I'm washing dishes, I'm, I'm reflecting on my own life. And so much of the dysfunction in my own way of relating to God is, God, I I need purity in my heart so that that you'll see me, that you'll recognize me, that, that you could actually look at me without turning away, without being repulsed or disgusted or grossed out by what's going on in my heart. God, in order for you to to turn toward me and reveal yourself to me and manifest your presence to me. I I gotta get this right. I I gotta repress and I gotta exercise discipline and purity and all of these stuff. And Jesus doesn't say that the pursuit of purity in our heart is so that God will notice us. It's so that we notice him. And so much of our Christian culture is just just bound in shame and guilt and suffering under condemnation because we've got this misaligned idea that God can't tolerate or look at sin and therefore the stuff going on in my life is disgusting and gross to him and God is just like, just kind of like holding me at arm's length and never willing to fully embrace me until I get my crap together. That couldn't be further from the truth. A lot of that comes from a specific verse in Malachi that says that God can't look on sin, but we misread Malachi's context and intention. Truth is God sees sin in the grossest sin every moment of his, his existence. God is omnipresent everywhere on the earth all the time. He's in the brothels in Calcutta that I walked through and he's he's in the motels on Lundy's Lane with the girls that are in bondage in these places, in sex slavery. He's walking through all of these places. God is not some little wallflower who can't, uh, can't even look at dysfunction and brokenness and sin. 
The scriptures actually say that because of the deep brokenness of the earth, God sent his son into the world, down into the middle of the mess of your life and my life. Emmanuel, God with us, God looking at us, God seeing us, God seeing your life, seeing the the depth of brokenness in your own heart and not turning away, not being grossed out or repulsed by it, but actually looking at you with eyes, like Spencer said, eyes of fire. It's actually the, the awareness of God's looking at us that, that brings a wave of love. The, the torrent of his love that, that actually refines and purifies and welcomes us in. Why don't you just stand with me as we I don't know what you're walking in here today with. But sometimes we read words like God blesses the pure of heart and we say that could never be me. And God will never come close to me because he sees what's going on underneath the surface. and. We have this dysfunctional, wrong view of God that he can't look at sin. Satan was literally in the throne room of God, speaking to him, the the epitome of evil incarnate in the book of Job. God, he's much stronger than you think he is. He's not intimidated by the brokenness or sin in your life. He's actually inviting you to walk with him into renewal of your heart. I heard one pastor say this, God's not at war with your heart. God's not at war with your desires. He wants to be present in them and to redirect them into desires that champion the kingdom that he represents. He's not at war with your heart. He's at war for your heart. He's at war for it. And the greatest freedom and liberty you and I could ever experience is walking in purity of heart before God and others. What did Jesus say we're to do then? Well, we begin by repenting from sin and turning to God. That's the call of Jesus and the call of the apostles. I want you just to close your eyes. So repenting, it's turning direction and getting back into alignment with God's desire for your life. How do we do it? Number one, we begin by walking away from current areas of temptation. I want you just between you and God, just to ask him, God, what are those things that I'm doing in my life, those places I'm visiting online or in person, what are those environments that are causing me to stumble, that are giving me great vulnerability? Guarding our heart is running from those. Repentance is turning away from those. Here's where you start. This week, what are the things that you need to actually turn the other direction from? Very practical, very simple, but it's hard to do. 
What are the relationships that you're in that are not healthy or the compromising situations you find yourself in in these relationships that aren't healthy? What are the places online you're visiting? The people you're interacting with. Step one, this week, just ask him, where do I start with that, God? What is the one thing or two things that you want me to walk away from in the other direction? That's how you guard your heart. Second thing, Psalm 139, God, search my heart, expose your heart to God. But then also begin to pray, God, who, who is there in my life that I could trust to bring the things of my heart into your light with? So number one, we turn away from the current areas of temptation. Number two, we confess our sin to God, but also look for somebody we can trust to begin to expose the real, real part of our life with. Number three, we humble ourselves and begin to seek his presence with everything we have. Maybe some of that time you're devoting to dysfunctional or destructive habits and behaviors, God is calling you to redirect into prayer and scripture reading, to spending time with him. Let's pray, Jesus. The cry of my own heart is to love you and be totally faithful to you. I just invite you, Holy Spirit, to expose to me areas of my heart that are broken and dysfunctional in need of your renovation and repair, your restorative work. I invite you to just point out in me any attitudes or perceptions or ideas that I have in my mind that are, are actually leading me away from you. Father, I just ask that you give me the courage and humility to invite my friends even deeper into my life and into the struggles and battles of my heart. Teach me to use my time, to direct my time to you even. Teach us today to seek your face in your presence. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I want Jesus, every one of us to be more aware of your presence in our life this week. The rule and reign of heaven on the earth pray for your blessing, Father, on each one of us to be able to walk into this this week.